0: Please turn to James chapter three. You know, when we look at a text of Scripture, at least I am always trying to figure out what was the writer trying to do with what he wrote here. And uh, James was talking to an audience from a Jewish perspective, and we'll see that a little bit more clearly as we get through. But I just see him in this section of James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18, kind of finishes off the chapter. I see James trying to help his listeners or his audience to understand what wisdom is and how to identify wisdom, true wisdom, over against false wisdom. And so this morning's sermon is a little bit more pedantic, it's a little bit more teachy But there's so much here, and I pray that you'll be able to grab hold of it as we look through it. I'd like to read it to just get it in our minds, and then we can begin. James chapter 3, verses 13, uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text of Scripture this morning, we thank you for the truth about wisdom and, Father, the truth about false wisdom as well. And, Lord, our hearts need to be challenged afresh with whether we're leaning to our own understanding or whether we're depending upon you for the decisions that we make on a daily basis. We thank you that James grappled with these issues with the people that he was ministering to and that we are the recipients of that through his epistle. We pray that you'd open up the eyes of our understanding that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what if you had a direct line to God? You know, there are some movies that have come out in recent years. Uh, Bruce Almighty, uh, that was one. Uh, there was another one, I think. Um, Almighty was in it too. Evan Almighty, see, you guys know. And, you know, they, they at least did one thing. They at least kind of brought to bear the fact that there's communication Lines open between God and, and humans. Well, there should be. He's our creator, and this is the greatest communication he's ever given to us, his revealed will here in the Bible. But what if you had a direct line to God, and he gave you anything that you could possibly wish for? What would you wish for? Think about that for a second. We have an example in the Bible, Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God literally told Solomon, he said, ask what you wish of me, God, to give you. Well, Solomon replied, after humbling himself and expressing great gratitude to God, he said, give your servant an understanding heart. An understanding heart. And God answered Solomon, behold, I've given you a wise And discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one be like you or arise after you. So that's why we say Solomon was the wisest man on earth, bar Christ, of course. But the truth of the matter is, is if we could just have wisdom. And as I was studying through this, I got to tell you, you know, you've probably heard it said that when the preacher is preparing a sermon, God takes them to the woodshed. This is so convicting, folks. But in a good way, because there's hope underlying the whole thing. We can obtain wisdom from God. So that's the good thing to just keep in mind. So if you feel a little bit whipped today, a little bit by the word, not by me, okay, just remember there is hope. There's hope. The first thing I want to talk about is that there are worldview implications for wisdom. And we see this in the the, the first two verses. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And James asks this searching question right off the bat. Who among you is wise and understanding? The opposite of being wise is to be what? Foolish. I mean, if you've ever read the Proverbs, you will see that very clearly. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where Paul says, where is the wise? He asks the same question that, that James is asking here. And throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul brings out the contrast between God's wisdom and, and the wisdom of man. And he ends up by basically saying that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just putting men in their place. He is a the creator, they are God. Now, this is all to get across the point that there is God's wisdom and there is wisdom of men, which is foolishness. It's foolishness. Who doesn't want to be wise? Is there anybody here that really doesn't want to be wise? James 3.13 begins with that simple question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Well, to be truly wise, the word wise here is sophos. Sophia It's another word. And it means anyone who's skilled in what they do. That's what wisdom is. A simple definition of wisdom could be to have the skill of daily living through the application of the knowledge gained from the word of God. To have the skill of daily living through the application, huge, huge, underline that part, through the application of the knowledge gained from the word of God. To be wise is to be skilled in the art of godly living. Our wisdom begins with the fear of God, Proverbs 9.10, who is the source of wisdom, according to Job 28. And such wisdom finds fullness only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This wisdom is discovered only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Apostle Paul tells us, Jesus Christ has become the wisdom of God for us. So if you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, sorry, you can't share in that wisdom that is from God. And you're left with the wisdom of man, which is foolishness. foolishness. Told you it's convicting. Man, James just doesn't hold back. It's like both barrels are blazing. Very, very important. Now, there are two different perspectives on wisdom. I mentioned to you that it gets into worldview, but it's not only wisdom he asks about or talks about. He talks about understanding as well. Understanding is kind of the knowledge element of wisdom. And it's knowing what to do in a situation. First, you got to know what to do in a situation. Then you got to do it. And there's a difference. Some of us know and don't do. And we also find in the scriptures that to he that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him that is sin. So we need to track with what James is trying to get across here. Knowing what to do in a situation is having the understanding. And doing it then is a practice of Wisdom. It refers to a person or a professional, this understanding. One who is an expert in applying what they know to what they do. So these people would be considered masters of their profession. They had understanding of their profession. James' question then might be paraphrased, Who among you are masters in the art of living? Now for the longest time I would read three psalms, a day, or yeah, three psalms a day. Excuse me. I think it came up to three. Could have been five. But you take the date, and then you just add 30 to that date. So today is the first, right? So you read Psalm 1, and then you add 30. And then you add 30, and you add 30, until you read all the psalms for that day. And then you read one proverb, the same as the date. So today you'd read Proverbs 1. And you do that, and through the whole month then, you will have read through the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs in one month. And I did that for years. It's very, very helpful. Very helpful. And it's ever fresh. Don't think that you, you know, oh, boring. You know, I read this before. (laughs) It's like, I can't believe I didn't see this before. Almost every day. That's the way God's word is. Wouldn't you want to be a master in the art of living? I sure do. I sure do. But here's where worldview comes into play, okay? Because there's two different perspectives on wisdom. The Hebrews, which James James is writing from, viewed wisdom differently from the Greeks. The Greek pointed to the intellect, and they taught that if a person possessed perfect knowledge, he could live the good life. That's Plato. If you had perfect knowledge, so if you had a, you're had you really brilliant, you could live the good life. But the Hebrew worldview focused on the realm of practical matters and the will, which was to be subject to divine guidance. And the Hebrews came before the Greeks. Recognize that. Hebrew wisdom was practical. It wasn't speculative. It was based on the biblically revealed principles of right and wrong. And that starts right in Genesis chapter 1. And how those principles were to be applied to daily life. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not. On your own understanding, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's a very Hebrew perspective of wisdom. Dependence upon God who created us and his revealed will discovered through the Bible. That's the Hebrew perspective. And James was writing from that perspective. True wisdom is a work of genuine salvation in the life of a believer, evidenced by the progress of transformation. I'm going to read that sentence again because it falls on deaf ears in many churches, if it's even considered. True wisdom is the work of gen- uh, genuine salvation in the life of the believer. And it's evidenced, the way you know a person has true wisdom, it's evidenced by the progress of transformation in their life. Nobody remains static. We grow from year to year to year. There's a difference in our life from year to year. In the parable of the servant of the master, Jesus relayed, you've been faithful servant in little I will set you over much. And in that short little sentence, it's kind of a key to biblical maturity. Wisdom is being faithful over the little that we have and thereby we receive more. And if we remain faithful to the more, we will grow from little to more and to more. And to more, but you need to apply what you know in order to gain more from the Lord. Some of us—I never forget—I I attended a, a small little church in a little village in Pennsylvania when I was doing missionary training, and um, <laughs> there were older folks there that their testimony was basically when they first believed in Jesus Christ back in the fifties. And it was like, it was a time warp because that's all they had. It's like, hey, what's God doing in your life now? I remember when I trusted Jesus. We sang Just As I Am 300 times and I went forward. You know, bless their hearts, you know, bless their hearts, but there's more than just trusting in Christ and then remaining static. In fact, I really question If there is no growth, is there really life? You know, what do we call a baby that is born and doesn't move at all and doesn't grow? A stillborn, it's a stillborn baby, it's not alive. And so there needs to be this transformation that takes place in the life. And the way that we see that transformation from glory to glory is by being faithful or being obedient to what God reveals to us. Okay, so God reveals to you your harsh and your words towards your wife. Man, let's pick on you guys, us guys, okay? So you're convicted of that. And you say, God, I really want to changes. And he says, boy, I've been waiting a long time for you. <laughs> and so you begin to work on that in your life. But you don't stop there. Then how about deeds of gentleness? How about deeds of kindness? You add that to the fact that you're watching your tongue and you're not talking sharply to her anymore. And you grow as you obey and more light is revealed to you and God will reveal more to you and you grow by that. So important. And James provides us now with two evidences of true wisdom and then two negative traits of self-deception. The two evidence of true wisdom are good behavior and gentle deeds. And the two examples of self-deception, which are negative, are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. What do these terms mean? Well, good behavior, James says, if you are truly a wise person, it'll manifest itself in good behavior. See, talk is cheap. It's not just here, and it's not just in words. The behavior must be good, and it is behavior. It's the way that you live, and the good is kalas, which means everything that is beautiful and pleasing, and that's the kind of behavior that we should have behavior that is pleasing, behavior that is beautiful. And then there's gentle deeds. That behavior exemplifies gentle deeds. And gentleness here is the idea of meekness. It's fruit from power. It's it's the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. And it is the calmness of spirit, neither passionate nor impassionate. It's steady. This kind of spirit is discovered when we understand the sovereignty of God, that he is overall. This, this morning we're talking in the candidates for the new members class about submission and, you know, um, touchy subject these days, right? Submission. Nobody wants authority over anything anymore, and, and we talked about the fact that, like saying a husband and a wife and the wife is to be submissive, that does not disallow her from bringing up her, her thoughts on a situation. She's free to share her thoughts on a situation, but if the husband decides that he's going to move in the direction that he's going to move, even though she might disagree with that direction, that's when she should submit to her husband's leadership. Um, submission always comes at the point of disagreement, okay? But it's okay to voice your concern or your disagreement as long as you can humbly then submit to the direction that your husband leads you. The truth of the matter is, is you're really not just submitting to the husband, you're submitting to God because you've discharged your duty of sharing with your husband your thoughts then you've humbly submitted to his leadership because God has placed him as the head over the family. And so really what you're submitting to is the sovereignty of God. Well, it's it's that way. That's the gentle deeds here. The kind of spirit that saturates the deeds done by a true child of God. Simply stated, this is gentleness. It's the willingness of a person to place themselves under the sovereign control of God. But see, this is where worldly wisdom comes in. I'm not going to do that. And we lean on our own understanding then. And we get into so much trouble. So much. I told you it's convicting. So much trouble. How many times have we done that in our lives, right? Now, here's the two negative elements of false wisdom in verse 14. And again, let me say, talk is cheap. Someone may claim to be wise and to have good behavior and gentle deeds, but, and I think verse 14 starts out with that word, doesn't it? But, it's a contrast here. It's a contrast. And it's it's a contrast to true wisdom, and here's false wisdom. Bitter jealousy. Instead of being gentle and dealing with others, this one is acting out of bitter jealousy. Bitter means to be sharp, cutting, destructive. And jealousy is actually a word that we uh, often translate zealous, okay? Zeal in New Testament. Nothing will stand in the way of this disease of the heart and what it desires. It is destructive zeal that is driving it. And wherever there's bitter Jealousy, there's selfish ambition. They kind of go together, hand in hand. The trade is closely related to that bitter jealousy. There's a drive for personal advantage, an intense work to promote its own agenda. Oh gosh, I'm not applying this because it's just too personal. Not for me, for you. (laughs) I want to give you a little way out here. So you can breathe a little bit. This is strong. A drive for personal advantage and intense work to promote its own agenda. It has no problem acting in an unprincipled way to get its way. Selfish ambition. Therefore, the term is related to behavior that causes division. Where there's selfish ambition, there's division, not unity. Romans 2 tells us, those who are filled with selfish ambition do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. In Philippians 1.17, we're instructed that out of selfish ambition, people were preaching Christ to get Paul in trouble while he was in prison, rather than from pure motives. You believe that? They were preaching Christ from selfish ambition rather than from pure motives because that would bring pressure on Paul in prison. It was displayed by people that were haters. It'd be like somebody from one political party slipping over into the other political party's news space and printing all sorts of things That would be negative. It's just, it's heinous. James admonishes his audience that anyone who claims Christ, yet acts with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, lies against the truth. When a person is possessed by such negative drives, the, the wisdom that they have is from the world. It's not from God. No matter what they say. Talk is cheap. Talk is easy. The proof is in the behavior. And it's evident through the behavior. So, in verses 15 and 16, we have the second point that I'd like to bring out. Why all the chaos? Now, this is a precious portion of Scripture to me because when I was a young man, I didn't have a Christian upbringing. I wasn't trained in the Scripture at all. And I came to God from below zero. okay, let's leave it at that. And so everything was new and I was growing and just learning so much. And I would come into these situations where it was, no other word would describe it, but chaotic, complete confusion. And I I couldn't find which way was up or what was going on in a, a situation. And typically it had to do with other people, relationships and stuff. And I just didn't know what to think. Everything was a big ball of confusion and frustration. And if you've experienced that, what you were experiencing was what God's word calls worldly wisdom. Was that play there? Either on your part or those with whom you were dealing. The wisdom of man. False wisdom. You see, because the essence of false wisdom, first, is that it's earthly, not heavenly. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your head, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly. It's earthly. It's of this earth. It's temporal. It's horizontal. It's limited by time. Its capacity is here in the earth. Paul addressed this whole concept in 1 Corinthians 1 where he defines two types of wisdom. He says there is the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And the earthly wisdom of men is not able to know God. By wisdom, men cannot know God. That's earthly wisdom. It must be revealed to them. Now, such thinking has its standards and sources from the earth. It measures success in worldly terms, and its aims are worldly aims. It's earthly versus the heavenly. It's the world. Secondly, it's natural versus spiritual, or supernatural, if you will. It's natural, which is the flesh. It's a natural wisdom in contact, in contrast to the, the supernatural wisdom that God gives us through Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Get that. The natural man thinks the things that we believe from the revealed will of God is stupid. And you know that if you've witnessed to people that are hard cases at the present time and are not receiving any of it. They think you're foolish. They're not only foolishness to him, he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. His spirit's dead. He has not yet been regenerated. He has not yet been born again. He doesn't have the capacity to even understand what you're saying. You think witnessing isn't an adventure? Every person that gets saved, beloved, is a miracle. You're seeing someone rise from the dead, literally. If you don't believe me, just look at your own regeneration and the way you were before you were saved and the way that you are after you're saved. So it's earthly, not heavenly. It's natural, not spiritual. Thirdly, it's demonic versus divine. So it's of the devil. So you have the world. The flesh and the devil are three greatest enemies here. This is very sobering. James cuts right to it and tells it like it is. What does he mean when he says, this wisdom is demonic? Well, he means that the source of such wisdom, the spring from which all of its waters flow, is the devil. (laughs) I can just see the news articles that were going out about James, how harsh he was, his tone needed to change, you know. I love the scriptures because they they give me all sorts of hope to speak the truth. Last night I was listening to a news broadcast, and uh, the person said that pastors need to tell their congregations the truth because they're being told lies, Blatant lies all the time about so many things. And it, it, it goes to our leaders to begin to speak the truth, no matter the consequences. Pray for me that I'll be faithful to do that for you. It, it, it's not a small calling, it's not a, a low calling, it's a high calling, it's a huge responsibility. But he says this kind of wisdom's from the devil. Was it not Lucifer's own fall that we see him using his own wisdom so aptly captured in Isaiah 14 where he declares, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Five times, I will, I will, I will. And that's referred to as the fall of Lucifer. One final thought, James shows us three enemies that war against our soul, and each has been named here as false wisdom. The world, the flesh, and the devil. James identified the three elements in false wisdom because such wisdom is earthly, of this world, It's natural, fleshly, and it's demonic. Christ in the garden said what? Not my will, but thy will be done. That's biblical wisdom. Now there's consequences with this false wisdom, isn't there? The incredible confusion, frustration, relationships... Experience that I mentioned earlier are typically due to one or both parties in the relationship, leaning to their own understanding, not exercising the wisdom that's from above. And when that is the case, you can expect these two results to occur. Disorder and every evil thing. And that has been my experience in those kind of situations. There's disorder and every evil thing. There's utter confusion Disorder, instead of bringing people together, this kind of wisdom drives them apart. Instead of producing peace, it produces strife and chaos. And the result is fractured relationships. And this kind of wisdom shows up in families, in husbands, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, children and parents, on our jobs and in the church. And we need to call the truth to bear on these things when they show show up. The word disorder means to cause a disturbance, to put in disarray, to to bring about confusion. All you got to do is think of the riots in Minneapolis. There was disorder and every evil thing that was taking place, right? James used the same Greek word, Uh, as this disorder in other places he called the double-minded man unstable it's the same Greek word as this word disorder and in 3.8 he talked of the uncontrolled tongue as being a restless evil a disorderly evil so remember God is not the God of confusion but he is the God of peace And this kind of thinking cannot possibly be from God, no matter what the person says. And I've been in some rip-roaring fights, sad to say in a Christian context, where the person was utterly convinced they were right and they would do whatever they could to prove that they were right. And it got ugly. And disorder and confusion and division came from that. Churches split. That's what kind of comes about during these kind of things. It's ugly, and I mean ugly with a capital U. Just terrible, terrible stuff, and it shouldn't be in the house of God. And every evil thing, it also brings about something that is good for nothing. (laughs) This kind of wisdom, right? Every evil thing, because that's exactly what the word evil means. It means worthless, vile, contemptible, worthless. It's good for nothing. It's often used to describe the deeds done by unbelievers as compared to those of believers. In John 5.29 we read, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life are compared with those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of the judgment. Evil in the sense of worthless. Their deeds didn't count for anything and they will end up in judgment because of it. But the righteous did good deeds to the resurrection of life and eternity with God. It's clear that absolutely nothing good or useful will result from human wisdom, no matter how brilliant, nothing. Well, let's look at the last two verses, verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, And good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I almost hear strings in back of that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's fun to read. It's soothing. It's comforting to read that. It's calming. That's the kind of wisdom that God gives. The essence of true wisdom is discovered through these seven aspects. First, it's pure. The intrinsic quality of this wisdom is purity, purity. It's uncontaminated, unpolluted with corruption. This type of wisdom shrinks away from contamination. Just go back to Proverbs 8 and that portion that I read to you at the beginning during uh, the scriptural reading talks about that. It has an aversion to all corruption. And this wisdom is supreme and a source from which the following qualities flow. So you've got this purity as kind of like the base from which the other six Qualities flow because next it's peaceable. It's peaceable. Peace flows out of purity. Impurity does not produce impurity. Does not produce peace. The selfish, bitter, jealous, ambitious person is quarrelsome because they they are either defining and defending their own perceived violated rights. That's a big one. Our personal rights. Beloved, do you realize the only right you have is to go to hell? Uh, Seriously, we have no rights. Or they're striving to gain those rights. (laughs) Wisdom from above is evidenced by peace in the same sense as the one described in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed is the peacemaker, for they will be called the sons of God. It's a mark of a believer. Wisdom from above is practiced by people who love peace. They enjoy peace. They pursue peace. And therefore, the wisdom that they have from above is peaceable. Next, it's gentle. It's gentle. And this is a different word that was used in James 3.13, where we just were. There it means a temper of spirit going about daily life, a calm spirit. Here the idea is that of a relationship towards others, towards other people, our interpersonal relationships. And what it talks about is a a fitting response, forbearing, courteous, considerate. One man called it sweet reasonableness. Wisdom from above is a sweet reasonableness. It's not trying to prove its way. It's thought. It's position. Paul does a good summary of this in 2 Timothy 2, where he says, It's not quarrelsome, but kind, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Talking about the man of God. The man of God is not quarrelsome, but kind and patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. It doesn't roll over and play dead. Doesn't remain quiet when he's challenged on something that's true, but he corrects. But with that kind of a spirit, with gentleness. And then there, it, reasonableness comes out in the next element here. Willing to yield and, and submissive in nature. The King James translates this, easy to be entreated. Wisdom from above is easy to be entreated. Again, this morning, we we're talking about um, disagreeing with Someone you can disagree with someone and not be disagreeable. We've lost that completely. I mean, would everybody agree on that? We, we just don't even know how to talk with each other anymore. We demonize each other. <laughs> wow. Everything polarizes completely. I remember once again um, as a young man growing in the Christian faith and, and um, I grew up within the context of um, strong fundamentalist background, (laughs) fighting fundamentalist, okay? And I came across these tapes where these two uh, seminary professors were debating a controversial subject. One was on one side and the other was on the other side. There are 12 cassette tapes, it tells you when I was listening to them, right? Cassettes were like MP3s, but not quite. So I listened to these 12 cassettes until they were completely worn out because I thrilled to listen to these two men debate a topic, a theological difference, guarding each other's honor and dignity and yet disagreeing completely. And I just thought, I like this a lot. That was peaceableness. That was, that was reasonableness. Neither one of them gave up. Each of them presented their, you know, their position. But that's, we need to practice that. So reasonable, easy to be entreated. That's a good understanding of the word as it carries a sense of being easily persuaded or to actively listen. The one side in that debate would quietly listen, believe it or not, until the other side was completed. And then he would take the floor and give his rebuttal to that. Not today. Just a mishmash. All talking at once. All negatively against each other. Person. Not ideas. The persons. Terrible stuff. Not wisdom from above. We live in a very unwise world. Beloved. So it has to be a conciliatory attitude and it's ready to cooperate when a better way is shown to it. It it is the opposite of being stubborn and unyielding. But it's also able to defer to others when an unalterable, excuse me, it doesn't defer to others when an unalterable theological or moral principle is at hand. You don't give in when you're dealing with a truth matter. Okay? And you need to understand that the truth matters, you can take them to the chapter and verse, and it's very clear. So, When that comes, you still need to be reasonable, you still need to be able to lay down your position, you don't buckle. But you need to be at least willing to think maybe you're holding a wrong position. (laughs) That would be humility, right? So you go from reasonableness then to full of mercy and good fruits, the complete opposite of every evil deed. It's a sincere compassion toward anyone in distress that leads to practical help. There's good fruits that go along with this kind of wisdom. It's full of mercy, but then it manifests itself through good fruits. And it's unwavering, impartial. The word is a compound word, meaning to divide, but then there's the little A in front of the Greek word, which makes it negative, not to divide. It's not divisive. It means to be consistent, not to bring division by saying one thing in one circumstance and in another thing in another circumstance. Your yeas are yeas and your nays are nays. You don't go with the wind depending on the audience or the people that you're talking to. And although this wisdom is marked by peaceableness and although this wisdom is willing to yield, not being quarrelsome or stubborn, it is a pillar of strength because it is unwavering in its commitments. It's the opposite of duplicity, which is also rampant in our day and age. I mean, it it was getting to a point during the COVID pandemic that I, I just, I was despairing to ever, believe that I would read anything that was true in the papers ever again and social media anywhere there was so much that was just disproven and proven and disproven and proven and disproven and proven I was my head was spinning it was frustrating things seem to be changing a little bit I don't know I'm just waiting patiently and praying And finally, it's without hypocrisy. It's unmasked, unpretentious, and authentic. Wisdom from above. What you see is what you get. And this wisdom is genuine, and it's living truth. Now, James used those seven qualities to show the pure and holy life of a person who is wise and understanding. The person who is wise and understanding will reflect good behavior. Habitually, not perfectly But habitually, that'll be the way they are. They'll be marked by peace and gentleness, and they'll be reasonable and approachable, and they'll they'll be rock solid, but not rock hard, unwavering in their commitments, but yielding to others in areas that are not touching matters of doctrinal truth or holy living. I want that kind of wisdom. Because you see, in verse 18, it tells us what the result of that kind of wisdom is. The result of true wisdom is righteousness. It's what we aspire to as believers. Where true wisdom exists, righteousness follows. It follows and flourishes. The picture here is of a verdant garden covered with beautiful flowers whose seeds only serve to produce more beauty after the same order of the original beauty. Did you catch that? That's what that righteousness comes from, those those virtues that we just talked about with true wisdom. It's what Paul said to Titus when he insisted that uh, believers under Titus' charge should adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. If we would put into place this kind of wisdom with these kind of traits, we would be adorning the gospel of God. Dressing it up. This, uh, you need to contrast this true wisdom with what James said the false wisdom was. Earthly, natural, demonic. That's what it's characterized by chaos and disharmony. Is it difficult to see the difference between the two? It really isn't, is it? It's not. Now, first things first, the Bible teaches us that to understand the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and that is true salvation. To to understand true salvation brings you into a personal relationship with an all-wise, all-knowing creator God who is sovereign over all. True wisdom has its source in God alone. Therefore, a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ is primary. You've got to have that in order to have wisdom from above. If this hasn't taken place in the life, then there is no relationship with God through such surrender, and that person will never be a wise person in respect to true wisdom described in James 3. They will always be using their own understanding to deal with situations in life. What kind of wisdom are you using? The wisdom of God or the wisdom of men? James was clear in showing the identifying marks of each, right? Maybe you can examine what the atmosphere is around you from James' description. Is it calm? Is it peaceable? Is it pure, full of good behavior and gentle deeds? Or is it marked by confusion, disorder, and worthless things? If it is, then you're leaning on your own understanding. It's just simple. And it's easy to see the difference. Kind of like, I I love God's checklist. This is a God's checklist, okay? There's another one in Galatians chapter five. And the checklist is the fruit, singular, fruit of the Holy Spirit, comprised of nine elements, fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the deeds, plural, of the flesh. At any time, beloved, you can just take those two and say, how am I handling this situation? (laughs) If you're bold. Because you'll see very clearly, real quickly, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. But the wisdom of men is worthless to God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To gain the wisdom of God, the very first step is to assume a very uh, definitive attitude that puts God before all. He's supreme. And humbly places yourself under that control. That's the first step. That's the fear of the Lord. And that is the first step and the only proper response to the gospel. When we hear the gospel, the gospel tells us we're sinful and separate from God. So what do you do with that? You either reject that and go on in your own way or you humbly submit yourself to the power and authority of God and you say, you're right. I'm sinful. I'm separate from you. And in doing that then, you've done the first step to wisdom, the fear of God. And you have a relationship with God. It's the only way to maintain an ongoing relationship with God in a Christian life. It's exactly the same. Do you desire wisdom? Then believe God when he says, Jesus Christ has become our wisdom. It all comes back to Jesus, always does. Jesus Christ has become our wisdom. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 29. So with that, I'll close. And next week is Mother's Day. Looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you today, we thank you for this teaching on wisdom from above and wisdom that is not from above. Your wisdom and the wisdom of men. Father, true wisdom and false wisdom. Thank you that it's so clear and that you use James to just Point out to us the elements of each that we can identify worldly wisdom. Wisdom that is natural, that is demonic. Father, we want nothing to do with that. Our hearts are pulled and, and called to wisdom that is from above. And we long for that, God. And we know the only way to ever obtain that is to have a personal relationship with you, but then to live in humble submission day by day, moment by moment, to you, Lord. And we will experience that wisdom from above in dealing with life's issues. Thank you for this today. In Jesus' name, amen.